everyone and welcome to the School of Sheen. 60 minutes of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Bishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On today's broadcast, we will have Bishop Sheen give us another Christmas message, for it is that time of Advent, Christmas is just around the corner. So I love that little sign that says, Jesus is the reason for the season. And so on today's broadcast, the television show, Life is Worth Living, will feature the audio portion from a program entitled, Content with Sawdust Brains. Now this, of course, uh, talks about our Lord, how he was laying in straw, laying in the manger. And I think of a beautiful line uh, from this show where the Blessed Mother, Mary, is looking down upon the Christ child. And we always talk about looking up to heaven, but for that moment she was looking down at heaven. And so may you ponder that mystery as you listen to this program. And during the second half of our hour, we will have a catechism lesson from Bishop Sheen, and it'll be lesson number nine in our 50-part series, and it's entitled, The Divinity of Christ. And so I encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, I have a very humiliating story to tell you about a bishop. This friend of mine went to Texas, and, and a friend uh, loaned the car. And while he was being driven from one city to another, the chauffeur kept addressing him as, Yes, Rose. No, Rose. And that's right, Rose. <laughs> and finally, the bishop said, uh, I'm a bit curious. Why do you call me Rose? He said, that's the way the madam told me to address you. No, said the bishop, it could not possibly have been that. Well, what did he say? Uh, well, uh, he said, you should say, either your excellency or your grace. Oh, grace, grace, rose, rose, I knew it was a lady's name. <laughs> Tonight we are going to tell you about Christmas. Just suppose that you came into a city, a perfect stranger, and you saw many people walking down the street, hilarious and gay and happy and exchanging gifts and greetings with one another and showing every manifestation of affection. And you found no apparent reason for it. You would wonder if they were out of their heads. At this time, everyone is happy. I wonder if they know why they're happy. It has every aspect of being a marriage. But we shall tell you the story of Christmas in terms of dolls. Yes, dolls. But before we show you the dolls, I must tell you something about Christmas in the world and what it has done to the world. Christmas has done, first of all, something to time. And then something to space, and finally, 
to the missing link. First of all, Christmas did something to time. Everyone is born in a certain era of time, say one. When eternity came to this earth and established his beachheads in Bethlehem, time was struck with such a terrific impact that it was split in two. That is why all the periods of history are divided since the first Christmas into the period of before Christ and after Christ, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And even the communists who deny God and are antichrist, they nevertheless have to date all of their newspapers as 1,953 years after his birth. And then space, too, was turned upside down. The Greeks used to believe that their gods were dwelling on Olympian heights. And that worried them to some extent. Because if God is way up there, what does he know about our suffering? They wanted a God who was down in the dust of human lives. God that was way up there, what did he know about being a refugee? Being homeless. Was he ever betrayed? Did he ever suffer? Did he ever come close to death? And when the Son of God was born under the floor of the world, he shook the foundations of the world and turned space upside down. For up until then, mothers always used to say, as they held children in their arms, heaven is way, way up there. The day that this woman held a babe in her arms, it was true to say that she looked down to heaven. And finally, the missing link is related to Christmas. During the last 100 years, men have been concerned about finding their relationship to the beast. And it is during that period of time that man has most acted like a beast. Christmas is the discovery of the missing link. Not the link that binds a man to the beast, but the link that binds man to God. And that divine babe is the real cave man, born in the cave of Bethlehem. And the light that is shining in his eyes is not that of a beast coming to the dawn of reason, but the light of a God coming to the darkness of men. And his name is not Piltdown. His name is Christ, for he is the link, being God and man, between both. For life, we discover now, is not a push from below, but a gift from above. Such is Christmas in relationship to history. Now, I'm going to explain it to you in terms of now. And you see there are dolls who have been broken, 
And you've heard the music, have you not, of Miss Peavy? She takes the part of a doll, and she wonders whether the little girl will love her anymore. Listen to her now. As she asks the girl. I'm a little doll who was dropped and broken, falling off my mommy's knee. I'm a little doll who has just been mended. Now won't you tell me, please? Oh, my ears on straight, is my nose in place? Have I got a cute expression on my face? I'm a blue-eyed bright. Do I look alright to be taken home Christmas Day? When I first came here just a month ago, brought in by a little girl who loved me so, she began to cry till they told her I could be taken home Christmas Day. the broken dolls that we're going to use to illustrate Christmas. Which one is the Tony? <laughs> this one has an Italian hairdo. It looks like spaghetti. <laughs> this has a hole in its head. It's very open-minded. And uh, this one was asked a question about whether or not he was a loyal American and he hid behind the Fifth, fifth Amendment and lost his head to Russia. <laughs> this is the only boy in the lot. He asked for a woman's hand and found the rest of his life he was under her thumb. <laughs> well, these were the broken dolls, and the little girl was very much concerned with the broken dolls, and she asked the broken dolls if they would like to be mended. And they were rather indifferent to it, and then she said, well, how would you like to become a little girl? You have only sawdust brains, and you've got just a rag heart. You have no life in you. Wouldn't you like to be alive just as I am? And the little doll said, first of all, how do we know there's any such thing as a life beyond us? We only know sawdust. And then the doll said, that means we'd have to get cleaned up, doesn't it? And we like to be dirty. <laughs> so the little girl was very much concerned as to 
what she could do to induce the dolls to become little girls. And she heard of a lady that could make the most beautiful doll that ever lived, though she'd never made a doll. And the little girl, whose name was Gundy, sent an angel to this beautiful lady and asked her to make a doll. And the little girl, in order to teach the dolls what they should be, became a live doll, and this is the little girl. told the dolls that if they would become alive like she was, they could think and they would know things that they never knew before, and they would also love one another. And she did everything she could to induce the dolls to become little girls. And some of the little dolls did consent to be little girls, and then the others went off to the psychiatrist. <laughs> Now to make the application. These dolls here represent human nature. Battered and weary, worn, full of anxieties and fears, have some knowledge but it's very incomplete, have an aspiration for goodness, but there still does not seem to be enough inner power to implement that desire. And then, too, there's a kind of a drag toward evil. And God wants to know that they would like to become not just creatures, but his children. And just as the dolls became little girls so that they were alive with the life of a human being, so God asked that man become a child of God. And he did not want to destroy human freedom. So what he did was to come to this earth as a man. He went to the most beautiful woman who ever lived. And through an angel said to her, Will you give me a man? And the woman said, Fiat, be it done. Just as the little girl had gone to a great lady and asked to become a doll, so that she had within herself her own human nature and her own human personality, and with it the nature of the doll, so too God asked this woman to give him a man, so that in the person of Christ there was the nature of a man, there was the nature of God, they were united in the person of God. Just as imperfectly, I have a body, I have a soul, the nature of each is different, but I'm still one person. And so he came to this earth in order to try to induce us, in order to change our nature, to be more than we are. He pointed to all creation that he had made. And he said here, for example, Chemicals are becoming plants, and plants are becoming animals, and animals are being transformed into man. Why should not man 
be transformed into something divine. Not that man would ever be as divine as he is. Man could in some way share his nature and then have added to his human reason light the transcendent human reason, namely the light of faith, and then have added to his will strength and an energy and a power that was not of earth, that would enable him to do the things that were good and righteous. Therefore, you see, when he came to this earth, it was not to give us a code, it was not to give us a law, it was not to have some secretaries write books that we might read and carry about with us, merely as we might carry about Plato or Socrates. It was rather that we might be infected with his divine life, not just be men, but children of God. And when finally eternity came to time and housed himself in that flesh saborium of his blessed mother, remember that at Christmas you cannot separate a babe from a mother. If you do, you will soon separate Christ from Christmas. And he housed himself in his mother. And she thought about for a place where he might be born. And following an edict of Caesar Augustus, she went to the royal city of Bethlehem, for she was of a royal family. And the story simply is, you remember, there was no room in the inn. The Creator came to this earth there was no room for him, no room in the inn. The inn is the gathering place of public opinion. There was no room there. And there in this place, it was called the house of bread. They asked Kem in Hebrew. He, the living bread, is laid in the place of food, the manger. And the angels speak to the shepherds and say, and this will be to you a sign. A sign of what? A sign that God was on earth in the form of a man. What will be the sign? This will be the sign. A babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Omnipotent, swathed in the bonds of humanity, eternity and time. Omnipresence in bonds. The bird that built the nest is hatched therein. 
there came to the babe shepherds and wise men. Shepherds, those who know, they know nothing. Wise men, those who know, they do not know everything. Never the man with one book. Never the man who thinks that he knows. The only two who ever find the God-man are the very humble and simple like the shepherd and the very learned like the wise men. Now the Christmas is on us. The problem that confronts each and every one of us is what does it profit Christ to be born in Bethlehem a thousand times unless he's also born in our own heart? Not everyone wants to be born like the dolls. Not every one of them wanted to be clean. Some of them say they want to have their nature changed. And then the others run off to Freudian psychoanalysts. But those who want their nature changed find themselves living in a different world with a different mind and a different love. They're so very happy. You want to go through life with sawdust brains, with rag hearts, loveless bodies. That's the challenge of Christmas. It is not something that has happened, it is something that is happening. And hence the great question that we have to ask is, in terms of the doll, is my heart on straight? Is my soul in place? Do I have a love expression on my face? Is my soul full of God's light? Do I look all right to be taken to the crib on Christmas morn? You remember the poem of Chesterton? Child in a foul stable where wild beasts feed and foam. Only where he was homeless are you and I at home. God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, 
Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the School of Sheen. And I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that broadcast. Uh, had a funny title, Content with Sawdust Brains, uh, but he has a way of uh, just making it come alive. So uh, sometimes you don't know what you're getting with Bishop Sheen with the title of the show. Uh, but, you know, after 21 to 25 minutes, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyway, hey, thank you for joining us. And, um, you know, we, this is a labor of love we put on each and every uh, week. It's uh, great to go into the vault, I say, and uh, pick through these hundreds of talks that he's given uh, over a 50-year period. And uh, there are literally, uh, you go to YouTube and all the videos are there. Uh, you know, the talks, the catechism series, everything. So uh, a number of years ago, a few friends and I, we got together and we said, we got to make our own site. We got to make this website that's easy for everybody to just navigate. And so uh, we came up with the name bishopsheentoday.com and uh, go into that website and everything that we could find on the internet that was free, we put it on there. So, you know, the talks, the catechism series, found a copy there, put it on. Uh, the hundred uh, videos that Bishop Sheen has from his television series, we put that on. Uh, found a list of all the books he wrote and the publishers, we put that on. And uh, the links to Amazon.com and the Catholic Company and places to buy books, you know, made it easy. So uh, if you are interested in learning more about Bishop Sheen, or you had a great love for him and you want to rekindle that love, may I suggest that you log on to that website, www.bishopsheentoday.com. Now, we want to thank you, for, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for giving your donations. And, you know, I think of just this little labor of love we do. Uh, we do it to bring souls to Christ. And this catechism series that I've been sharing uh, each week. We're on lesson number nine. It's entitled The Divinity of Christ. You know, we're all sometimes functioning at a, a grade eight catechism. We all need a refresher course. We all need a little bit of review. And what a great way to just week by week by week relearn our faith. And so I hope you enjoy this lesson today on the divinity of Christ. And of course, it's the God-made man. And some people call him the man-God. Uh, but Jesus is both human and divine, and let us never forget that. So I encourage you now to sit back and relax once again and enjoy this catechism lesson by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, entitled The Divinity of Christ. Peace be to you. You remember that in a previous instruction we said that our blessed Lord called himself both Son of God and son of man, that he was both God and man. This is indeed a great mystery. 
It is what is called, actually, the mystery of the incarnation. That word incarnation means incarnate, in the flesh. It means that God assumed a human nature, that he was enfleshed, as it were. St. John has a very beautiful description of it. He says, the word became flesh. Now, the word means, of course, God, or the second person of the Blessed Trinity. This is a difficult mystery, and we are going to try to explain it with a number of examples. When we say that God became man, we do not mean to say that heaven was empty. That would be to think of heaven as a kind of a space, like a room that was 20 by 30 feet. When God came to this world, he did not leave heaven empty. And when he came to this world, he was not shaved down, he was not whittled down to human proportions. He was rather... Christ was the life of God dwelling in human flesh. St. Thomas Aquinas has a very beautiful description of this in one of his hymns. He said, The heavenly word proceeding forth, yet leaving not the Father's side. Now let us begin with answering the question, why did God become man? We limit ourselves to the historical order in which we live. The answer is he became man in order to redeem us from sin. Therefore, we have to describe why it was necessary for God to become man to completely atone for our sins. Well, the answer is Whenever we sin, we contract an infinite debt. But we cannot pay an infinite debt because we are finite and limited. Here is the reason. We will state it in the form of a kind of a principle and then we will give examples. Honor is in the one honoring. For example, Suppose a citizen of the United States, the mayor of a city, the governor of a state, and the president of the United States pay a visit to the Holy Father. Who pays the Holy Father the greater honor? The citizen or the president? Is it not the president? Honor is in the one honoring. Now, the other proposition, the other side of it is this. Guilt or sin is always measured by the one sinned against. If, for example, a citizen, a mayor, commits a felony or a crime or a tyranny, which is the greater sin? 
Guilt or sin is always measured by the one sinned against. If, therefore, the sin or the guilt was against, say, the President of the United States, obviously the mayor or the governor would be guilty of the greater sin, would he not? Now let us apply this to man. We have sinned. Against whom have we sinned? Against God. All right? Sin is measured by the one sinned against. We sinned against God. He is infinite. Therefore, our guilt, our sin is infinite. Now let's take the other proposition. Honor is in the one honoring. We are going to try to pay that debt. Who is honoring God? Man. But man is finite and limited, is he not? Well, if he's finite and limited, he cannot pay an infinite debt. Therefore, it is possible for man to contract an infinite debt and still never be able to pay it in strict justice. After all, that should not surprise us. It's very easy for all of us to run up greater debts than we can pay. All right, then, we have an infinite debt against God which we cannot pay. Now, could God forgive us? Could he say, oh, forget it. It's nothing. Well, he might say, forget it, but he could not say it is nothing. Suppose he did forgive us. He indeed would be merciful. But he would not satisfy justice. If we owe somebody $20, the debt can be forgiven. But justice is not satisfied unless we completely pay the debt. I can remember when I was a, a boy, I often used to break the window of the next-door neighbor. And the next-door neighbor sometime would say, forget it. But somehow or other, I never just wanted to be let off. So I would go to my piggy bank and... I would take out my savings in order to pay for the broken window. So man does not just want to be let off by God. He has a sense of his own dignity too. And he wants in some way to pay the debt which he owes to God, though he's unable to pay it. Now how it is to be paid, we have yet to answer. If justice as well as mercy are to be satisfied, then God had to become man. First of all, why did he have to become man? Well, unless he became man, he could not be our representative. He could not stand for us. Man would not be paying the debt. Just suppose that I were arrested for speeding. Could you walk into the courtroom the moment that I was on trial and say, Judge, let him go, I will take it over. The judge would say to you, stay out of this. What have you got to do with this? You're not involved. He is. 
So inasmuch as man is involved, and inasmuch as man has sinned, in some way God has to share our nature which sinned. And then furthermore, sin demands some kind of suffering and expiation. And if he ever became man, he could suffer as man, suffer in our name. But not only would he have to be man, but of course he would also have to be God. He would have to be man in order to act in our name. He would have to be God in order that the infinite debt could be paid by someone who was infinite. Every action, therefore, of God would have an infinite value. Therefore, the outrage against God could be atoned for. And furthermore, he would have to be God in order to be sinless. After all, if he were full of sin, he too would need redemption. No man can atone for his own sins. In conclusion, therefore, if both justice and mercy are to be satisfied, God would have to become man. Man to be one of us, God, in order that he could pay the infinite debt. We can explain this in other terms, perhaps in the terms of the old nursery rhyme. Remember it? Hump, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could never put Humpty Dumpty together again. Now that rhyme pretty well expresses the condition of man as a result of sin. Since the fall of man, man is very much like a broken egg. He can't put himself together. There's some kind of a disorder inside of himself, and that is the reason why the mere arrangement of wealth and the social order outside of him is not going to change man himself. He needs God to put him together again. Or another example. The example of a clock whose mainspring is broken. We have the works, but somehow they just do not go. What two conditions have to be fulfilled to make that clock work? First, the mainspring must be supplied from the outside. Two, the mainspring must be placed inside of the clock. Man cannot redeem himself any more than that clock can fix itself. If man is ever to be redeemed, the redemption must come from without and must be done from within. It must come from without. Simply because... We cannot, for example, if we are blind, ever restore our vision. If we've broken communion with God by sin, we cannot restore it. Have you ever taken a rose petal into your fingers 
pressed and squeezed the rose petal? Did you notice if you could ever restore its tint? You could not. Lift a dewdrop from a leaf. You could never replace it. And evil in like manner is just a little bit too deep-seated to be righted by a little bit of kindness here and there and a little reason and a little tolerance. You might just as well tell a man who's suffering from consumption that all he needs to do is play six sets of tennis. The clock whose mainspring is broken cannot repair itself. So salvation, therefore, has to come from without. Our human will is too weak to conquer its own evil. Just as the sick need medicine outside of themselves, we need a teacher for our minds, we need a physician for our bodies, and we need a redeemer for our souls. A redeemer from outside humanity. Outside of humanity with all its weakness, its sin, and its rebellion. Now let's take the other side. We said that if the mainspring is broken, a new mainspring has to be supplied from without, but be put inside of the clock, and so too. Salvation must come from without humanity, but it has to be done in some way within humanity. So God, therefore, had to become man in order that man would be redeemed from within God did not become man, he would have no relation to us. Man, as I said, does not want just to have his sins forgiven, he wants to atone for them. So God became man. Now you put these two conditions together, and you have the reason why the Redeemer should be both God and man. God from without. Man, in order that he might be within humanity. That is the incarnation. God becoming man in the person of Christ in order that he might save us from our sins. Here we come to something just a little more difficult, and we're going to use a word which you may not often hear. We have to spend about six months when we are studying for the priesthood just studying the meaning of these words, hypostatic union. The hypostatic union means that there are in Christ two natures and one person. Now that's something you must always remember. Embedded in your memory, in your mind. Christ has two natures, one human, one divine. They are both united in the person of God. Was God, therefore, a human person? No. He was a divine person. 
Did he have a human nature? Yes. Did he have a divine nature? Yes. And they were united in the divine person of God. Obviously, I am not using the word nature and person in the same sense, am I? Perhaps we can make this clear if you will take a pencil in your hand. I will wait for a minute until you put it into your fingers. Now that pencil has a nature, has it not? In other words, it's the nature of a thing that writes. A nature is a thing, it's something that operates. For example, cow has a nature, pig has a nature, carpet has a nature, a pigeon has the nature, your finger has a nature. But is a cow a person? If your cow comes over into my pasture and eats all of my grass, I cannot sue the cow. I could sue you. There therefore must be some difference between a nature and a person. And this is the difference. A person is a source of responsibility. A dog is not responsible for its actions. But man is. Now that is a very simple definition of a nature and a person, but perhaps it will suffice us for the moment. Now, using the pencil that you have in your hand, Do you notice that there are before you two natures? One, the nature of the pencil. The other, the nature of your hand. Is your hand a person? No. Because you could lose your hand and still be yourself, could you not? Therefore, we have in the hand now, combined with the pencil, two natures. How are they united? In your one person. So it is possible to have a union of two natures in one person. You have a body, you have a soul. They are very different in nature. One is material and the other is spiritual. And yet you're only one person. That too is a very incomplete and imperfect analogy of what happens. But returning now to our pencil. The pencil of and by itself cannot write. You put it down on a chair or a table before you. That pencil cannot write, can it? Now, you bring your hand down to that pencil. 
You have the union of two natures in one person. Now the pencil can write, can it not? It can do something that it could not do before? And when it writes, do you say the pencil writes or I write? You do not say my eye sees you. You say I see you. You do not say my ear hears you. I hear you. You do not say my stomach digests. I digest food. Notice that we are always attributing the actions of a nature to a person. That is why if you sign a check, there is responsibility involved. And neither the hand nor the pencil are the sources of that responsibility. Now let us apply the analogy. Put down the pencil again on the table. That pencil, loving by itself, cannot write. That pencil is like man. He cannot pay the debt he owes to God. Now, put your hand in the air. Bring it down slowly to that pencil. Pick up the pencil. Here you have a union of the nature of the hand which is united with your person and the nature of a pencil. Now the pencil can do something which by it itself it could not do. So the hand with your personality coming down to that pencil represents the person of God and the divine nature coming down to human nature. And when God comes down and takes upon himself a human nature, unites it with his divine nature and divine person, you have the union of two natures, namely the nature of God, the nature of man, in the unity of the person of God. And now, just as that pencil could do something which oven by itself it could not do, so human nature, united with the person of God, can now begin to do something which of and by itself it could not do before. The pencil is the instrument of my personality, and so when God, with his divine nature, came down to this world and took upon himself a human nature from the womb of his blessed mother, he took upon himself an instrument. Once God took upon himself our human nature, he could act in our name. And every one of the actions of that human nature would have an infinite value. Not a sigh, a word, a tear, a step of that human nature was inseparable from the person of God. That is why one breath of God made man would have been enough to have redeemed the world. Why? Because it was the breath of God. and therefore had an infinite value. But why then did God suffer so much when he took upon himself our human nature? 
Well, there are more grains of sand in this world than are necessary. And so, love knows no limits. And the only way to prove perfect love is by a surrender of all that one has. And so, God took upon himself our human nature. And he said, he loved us unto the end, even unto death. Now you see the beauty and the majesty, do you not, of Christ? Why, when he became man in Bethlehem, took upon himself the form of a babe, what did we have? Why, he who was born without a mother in heaven is born without a father on earth. He who made the world was born here. Maker of the sun under the sun. Molder of the earth on the earth. Ineffably wise. A little infant. Filling the world. Lying in a manger. Ruling the stars. Nursed by his mother. The mirth of heaven weeps. God becomes man. Divinity incarnate. Eternity time. Lord scourged. Power bound with ropes. King crowned. And if you were the only person in the world who ever lived in sin, you would have come down to this earth and died and suffered just for you alone. That is how much he loves you. God loves you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back uh, to our School of Sheen broadcast. Uh, what a powerful ending there uh, that Bishop Sheen gives at the end of that talk. Uh, you know, just this great love story, how God loves us so much that he took on flesh, became man, uh, and of course then went to the cross to die for our sins. And he talks constantly about these two great love stories, the love to become man and the love to sacrifice his life, to lay down his life for his friends. And so uh, you cannot help but fall in love with Jesus when you listen to Bishop Sheen. He convinces you of this relationship that we need to have with God, that he established this relationship with mankind, and he wants to continue it generation after generation after generation. So I ask you, what are you doing to improve that relationship? May I recommend that you uh, purchase a crucifix or pull out a crucifix that may be in a drawer or sitting in the corner a basement in a box with all your other religious articles. You know, it is something, we are never to be ashamed of the cross. And the cross can teach us a very powerful lesson this lesson of love. 
And so that's my little tip for you. Of course, pull out the manger scene. Pull out that Christmas crush. Uh, and I know it may be the Walmart special, and it may be something very humble, but still bring it out anyway. You'll be glad you did. And just ponder that great mystery of love that God came into the world. He became man. And, you know, as we had mentioned earlier in the broadcast, thinking of Mary looking down upon the Christ child, and she was looking down upon heaven. So may you spend a few moments over the next few weeks to kneel in front of the image of baby Jesus and know that you're looking at heaven and that he wants to save you. He wants to love you. And the beauty of babies is they don't judge. <laughs> they don't judge. Uh, they just love you back. And so uh, may you experience the love. And so until next time we meet, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, Cry.